Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm glad that you have joined us this morning. This is our second teaching in a series entitled Mission Impossible. Can the church bridge the culture without losing its soul? When we began a couple weeks ago, I established, hopefully, from Revelation chapter 1, that we have a core mission. And that core mission is to declare Christ as Savior and Lord. This is our guiding principle. This is our North Star. This is our straight line standard of what we ought to be doing. It's the gospel of Christ as Savior and as Lord. And then I suggested that both in our lives and in our churches, we often get caught pursuing a good thing that is just a little bit off of that actual core mission. Maybe just one degree. It may be that we want to have a great welcome ministry or a great singles ministry or a great music ministry. And all of those are good things, but they're one degree off from declaring Christ as Savior as Lord in terms of a core mission. We called that slightly off mission, this sort of other line, a shadow mission. A mission that might be a good thing. But if we keep pursuing that as the mission, eventually we end up miles away. And so even when we ask, can the church bridge the culture without losing its soul, I would suggest we will lose our soul if bridging the culture becomes our mission because the culture will ask us to give up the gospel in order to bridge it. And so we remain fast and true to our core mission, bridging the culture, being welcoming, having a good kids ministry, all of these other missions that churches do, they're all good, but they're secondary to the core mission of declaring Christ as Savior and Lord. It might be helpful, this, this other picture might be a little helpful, instead of, well, that's very confusing. Okay, so you see there's this parallel line and there's that parallel line, which aren't the lines of the TV. So instead of thinking of our core mission as being a baseline, let's kind of think of it as being two parallel lines. And that these two parallel lines of our core mission are the lines that help determine the rightness and the goodness of any other mission. So let's say, let's put another line up there, Nathan, and that'll help us too. There we go. Okay. Um, so let's imagine that this is our, our ministry of hospitality and of welcome. And that is a good ministry, and we ought to be pursuing it, but it must always exist within the bounds of our core mission. And so if ever the, the desire to be welcoming bumps up against the desire to declare Christ as Lord, it must be readjusted. And so our secondary missions will always sort of be vacillating between the guidelines of our core mission. And so if we put like multiple ministries up there, you might say, well, the kids ministry is bouncing around between these two lines and the, uh, and the welcome ministry and the singles ministry and all those things may be good ministries, but they're secondary ministries that must exist within the guidelines of the gospel. Otherwise, we end up with a shadow mission that takes us away from the gospel. As we work our way through the seven churches of Revelation, we will find that five of the seven churches receive a rebuke of some sort from Christ. So there's seven churches that receive letters, and they're sort of on a, a circuit that a messenger would have taken. 
So Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea would have been the circuit. John is exiled down here to Patmos. This is where he's receiving the vision. And Ephesus is the first city in the circuit, so it is the first letter that is listed in Revelation. And I'm going to suggest as we go through the five churches, five of the seven receive rebukes, that they've each sort of chased a shadow mission that on the surface is good. On, on one level, it's good. It's good as a secondary mission. But when you chase that as the mission, you end up miles away. The church today is, is Ephesus, and it is in Revelation 2, chapters one through, or sorry, verses 1 through 7. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Before we dive into that passage, though, I'd like to expand on a comment I made last week when I first introduced these cities to you. And what, I, and what I said last week I think is particularly true of Ephesus, and that is when we think of these churches, because we think of them um, as ancient cities, and we think of the ruins, and we think of like Roman columns that are broken down, we tend to think that they were sort of um, a different type of people than ourselves, maybe even um, less advanced, maybe less cultured, um, that they're just sort of old and ruinous compared to ourselves. However, I think we need to readjust that a little bit to remember that these were large, complex cities with, with issues of justice and of race and of poverty and of sexual abuse and immorality. They were places with theaters and temples and businesses and commerce and military. And the people and the communities there in these cities, they were families and they were 20-somethings and they were newborns and they were friends and they were grandparents. I mean, this is a normal, large, bustling city, Ephesus and the others. And I know that they lived in a different world and there's some differences, but there's my, we sometimes, I think, overemphasize the differences as opposed to the commonalities between us and an ancient city in Rome. Ephesus in particular was an advanced urban center with up to 250,000 people. Now, to give you some scale, some scale the city of Wilmington is 70,000. So you need to be thinking of city of Wilmington and Claymont and Brandywine 100 and Newport and Ellesmere and Arden. You need to think all of that would have been Ephesus. So don't think some podunk town in Asia Right? You're thinking a large urban center. And since, and since Ephesus is one of the more well-preserved cities from the time, we actually have some pretty amazing um, ruins. Uh, one of them is of a 25,000-person amphitheater in Ephesus. This is amazing. Not only does this show the scope of the population, but I think it also shows us that they were a culture willing to put a great amount of time and money into entertainment. Does that sound familiar? A culture that'll put a lot of time and money into entertainment? Hmm. Not long after this letter was written, the Library of Celsus would be completed. Here's a ruin of that. Library of Celsus. It would eventually hold 12,000 scrolls, making it the third largest library in the Roman Empire. Hmm. A culture that desires to have knowledge at its fingertips and access to it immediately? Does that sound familiar? Ephesus was also the site of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. Here's the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. But here's an artist's rendering of what it likely looked like or something like what it might have looked like. 
one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, as you can imagine. 450 feet long, over 100 columns. Though this temple was to a Greek goddess, or since this temple was to a Greek goddess, it did bring some kind of spiritual awareness, some level of spiritual understanding, but it was steeped in superstition, steeped in sexual depravity, steeped in abuse by the powerful. Superstition, sexual depravity, abuse by the powerful. Does that sound familiar? I do think that their world was not like ours, but in a lot of ways their world was just like ours. And certainly they were asking the question, how do we bridge the culture, or can the church bridge the culture, without losing its souls? That would have been a question that the Ephesians would have been asking. Now, if you haven't put it yet together in your mind, just a second ago when I said the word Ephesians, maybe that triggered to you the book of Ephesians. And in fact, this is the same city that received, the same city, the same church, that received the book of Ephesians from Paul. Paul spent more than two years in Ephesus, and when he left, he left Timothy there to serve. And when Timothy left, tradition tells us that John himself, John the Apostle, served as the pastor or the leader of the church of Ephesus. So Ephesus has a long history of very significant leadership, caring for it, and um, leading it. And so I think because of its special pedigree and history, it makes the warning in the letter to the Ephesians all the more intriguing. So let's look at it together. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work, works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This passage begins with this imagery of Christ holding seven stars in his right hand and walking amongst lampstands. And this imagery is actually related to the very end of chapter 1, where John first sees Jesus and he's holding these stars and he's walking through these lampstands. And the very end of chapter 1 says that the stars are the angels to the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
And so when verse 1 begins and we see Jesus walking amongst the lampstands, the imagery is that Jesus is walking amongst his local congregations. He's walking amongst his people. He's walking amongst his churches. As my students in high school would say, he's hovering. He's hovering. My students will often say, Mr. Bino, can you stop hovering? And I'll say, if you're doing what you need to be doing, you shouldn't have to worry about it. Isn't that true? Jesus is hovering, not because he's threatening, but because he's in charge. Just like when I'm in charge of a classroom, I hover to make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing, that everybody's doing fine, that there's nobody in need or anything like that. I hover not because I like hovering, but because I'm supposed to be in charge of the room. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus, who is the leader of his churches, would be hovering, walking among the lampstands, making sure everything is going well, adjusting this, checking that, criticizing this, critiquing that. Are you, are you on Facebook? Checking around to see what's happening amongst his churches. And when he walks and sees the church of Ephesus, he has some good things to say in verses 2, 3, and 6. He has three major affirmations. They were a serving church. They worked hard. They toiled. They were a serving church marked by good works, marked by hard works. They were a discerning church marked by their orthodoxy. They were concerned about theology. They were concerned about knowledge. They were concerned about getting it right. And they were a preserving church. I'm sorry, persevering church. A persevering church known for its stability. This all sounds like a pretty good report card. You work hard, you persevere. You're into your orthodoxy. Sounds like that's all good. And those things are good. But verse 4 shows us that there is a major issue. You have abandoned, Jesus says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, because of the list of things that the Ephesians were doing well, we may kind of read this as being a tweak offered to the church. Almost like Jesus is saying, you're doing great. Nice work on the theology. Nice work on the the perseverance. But what you need is a little more love. You just need to tweak, just sprinkle a little more love in there. Add a little bit more love to your serving and add a little bit more love to your orthodoxy. Add a little bit more love to your perseverance. Keep doing what you're doing, but add more love to it. But I think this reading doesn't take into account verse 5. There's an intensity in the language of verse 5 that we need to respond to. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is extremely strong language. They're told twice to repent. It kind of bookends that second phrase. They're told twice to repent. They're not just being told to tweak or to readjust or to sprinkle in a little love. They're being told to turn, to admit fault, to change direction. 
And not only that, there's a threat. If you do not, I will remove your lampstand. This ranks as one of the strongest threats to all of the seven churches. Jesus is saying, if you don't repent, I will take away your legitimate status as a Christ-following church. You will no longer be one of my lampstands. This has to give us pause. What are these people doing wrong? That even though they are hardworking in their service and orthodoxy and in their theology, and even though they are steadfast in their perseverance, that none of that comes close to offsetting this lack in verse 4. What are they doing so wrong that they are under the risk of losing their status as an actual church of Christ? What does it mean that they have abandoned the love they had at first? This is the problem. But what does it mean that they have done this? Well, I want to, I want to um, start with a couple interpretations or directions on this passage that I don't think are correct, but that I've heard. So the first answer to what does it mean that they have abandoned their love that I don't think is correct is that the church lacked love. That is sort of in general lacked this idea of love. You know that your Bibles, many of your Bibles have these headers in it, the little headings in front of sections. That wasn't written by the original people. You know this, right? This was added later by publishers. And one translation, popular translation, has this section entitled, The Loveless Church. And I think that, I think that takes us in the wrong direction. It don't, does not seem to me that there's a general statement here from Christ that they lacked love. You don't love each other enough. You need to love one another more. All good things, but that doesn't seem to be the problem. And part of the reason I don't think that's the problem is because they're not told you lack love. They're told what? You've abandoned the love you had at first. So there's something about first love that has been lost, not love in general. So I don't think it's adequate to say the church didn't love each other well enough, and that was the problem. A second incorrect understanding is that the Ephesian church is being called back to the passion and the energy and the excitement of when they first met Jesus. I've heard sermons and Bible studies, particularly Bible studies, this is often the hook of a Bible study on this passage, will be, think back to when you first fell in love. Do you remember how exciting that was? Do you remember the energy and the passion and the newness of that? Think back to that kind of love. And then they'll make a connection to the, to the church and to the passage. This is what happens to churches. We need to get back to that same excitement and that same passion that we had early on. That passion and energy associated with first love. Now, I appreciate the attempt here to, to include the idea of first love. So I think it's actually a little closer than the first interpretation. But I don't think it jives with this passage or the larger teaching in Scripture about what happens in real love. And that is because first love is rarely the best love. First love is rarely 
the best love. My wife and I have been married for 22 years, and I remember the fun giddiness of our early dates and of our first love. But if you told me to go back there as if that was a better love than having lived with her and raised children and gone through the ups and downs of life for 22 years, that is not a better love. The love we have now is the deeper, richer, more meaningful love. Now, it's different than the giddiness of the early love, but I don't think it's fair to say, oh, you've lost the better love since you're not giddy or the same way about it as you were at first. And so I don't think it makes sense that Paul or that Christ would say, you need to go back to that giddy first love. Because real true love has matured and becomes deeper. And this is not true, just true for spouses. Think of friendships. You can even think of your pet. It was fun to have that pet early on. But after years and years of being together, there's a loyalty and a friendship and a connection that you have with that pet that's deeper and richer than the fun of the puppy years. So I believe that the text is not saying that they lack love in general, and it's not that they need a shot of energy into their love. I think the problem is, is that the object of their love has shifted from Christ. They have abandoned who they loved at first. They have abandoned their first love. So to return to the marriage imagery, it's not saying you've, you've lost the passion you once had for your spouse. It would be saying that you now love someone else. You've left your spouse and you have a new love, is what I think Jesus is saying to this church. You've abandoned your first love, me, Christ, and now you love something else. So it's not just finding the passion. You need to return. You need to leave this new love and return to the original love that you have for me, that you had for me. No wonder Christ is threatening to remove the lampstand. If they've moved on from Christ and started to love something else, then we would not be, should not be surprised that Christ comes and goes, well, if you've abandoned me and you don't even love me as your first love anymore, then I need to remove the lampstand. I need to remove your status as a Christ-following church. They don't need to return to the passion of their first love. They need to return to their first love. They need to return to Christ being the central motivation. And they need to give up what I'm going to tag as their shadow mission, which was, I think, something like they wanted to work hard in all the right things. There's no doubt that the Ephesians were a hardworking church. And this even may sound good. Remember, shadow mission doesn't sound bad. It's good to work hard at all the right things. But that cannot be the mission or you end up miles away. And I think we all know of people who work hard to do the right thing and maybe even do the right thing, but with the wrong motivation, with the, with the wrong love. Right thing, wrong love. For example, let's say our love for Christ is replaced by a primary love for ourselves, which is very normal. You can imagine still working hard to do the right things, but it's not out of love for Christ, but it's out of love for ourselves. 
And so we continue to serve, but it's not because of Christ, but rather because we like to feel useful. Or we continue in our studying of theology, but not because we love Christ, but because we like to feel knowledgeable. Or we continue in our perseverance, not because of Christ, but because we like to feel strong. So you can see how all the right things can look the same on the surface, but they're doing it out of a love for something other than Christ. The love has shifted from Christ to something else. You can see how the Ephesians could have been doing all the right things, even praiseworthy things, but if it's not out of love for Christ, they were in danger of losing it all. The warning for our church or for any church is clear. You can work and toil and do a lot to run a church and do lots of right things, but lose Christ. And I would assert that there are churches meeting right now that have all kinds of ministries, that have all kinds of choirs, that have all kinds of community outreach, but they have lost sight of their real mission to declare Christ as Savior and to declare Christ as Lord. May this never be us. And I think we avoid this by first recognizing that it could happen to us. Let's not be so arrogant as to think we could never be the church in Ephesus. We could be the church in Ephesus. Because I think the picture of the church in Ephesus is that you can have a fully functioning body with a coffee ministry and kids' ministries and justice ministries and men's groups and still be only a breath away of having your lampstand removed because you've lost Christ. We can all agree to play church, but without true commitment to our first love. And so we pay attention to verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. This is not talking about the height of some giddy earlier love. This is talking about, remember the glory and the purity and the power that comes through dedicated love to Christ. The things we sang about this morning, the things that Matt highlighted in our worship time. Remember the power of loving the Lord as Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord. Remember the love that Christ shows us by being our Savior and Lord. Remember how he is our anchor and our guideline. Remember that he offers us a true mission, a gospel mission. And remember how far you fall when you love anything else. And so we repent, as verse 5 continues. We admit to how easily our loves can be replaced. How fickle our love is, how fickle our love is, how quickly and easily we can slip into loving something less than Christ. We are, as the hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Let us guard become even a church that loves church more than Christ, that loves churchy things more than Christ. And let us be on our guard against becoming individuals who try to do all the right things and not really care about the right reasons. And so we do the works we did at first. And they may look similar to the right thing, but the right thing done with the right reason comes with a new power. Serving done out of love for Christ has a different power. Perseverance done out of love for Christ has a different authority. 
theology out of love for Christ has a different power within it. And so we do these things with the love of Christ that we had at first. The first love is our motivation. I'll close with a story that's appropriate for the Christmas season. A family puts out a nativity set every Christmas in their, in their living room, and they're unpacking it, as many of you probably did this past week, unpacking some decorations, finding things lost, broken, missing. We used to have a tree. Where's the tree? This family was getting out its nativity set, found, finding all the pieces, but they can't find the baby Jesus piece. Husband turns to his wife. Where's Jesus? She says, I don't know. It's a little piece. Let's keep looking. They find Mary and Joseph. They find the donkeys. They find the camels. They find the shepherds. They find the star. Can't find Jesus. It's not as big as the camel. Maybe he's tucked in some of the wrapping. So they keep digging and they keep looking. And to no avail. So the wife says, what... What are we going to do? And the husband responded, let's just put out the nativity set as it is. Maybe no one will notice that Jesus is missing. May Jesus, may Jesus never be so small in our lives or in our church that we don't even notice that he's missing. Pray with me. Just take a moment to reflect as we enter into a few more songs of worship. I think many times in our lives, we realize we've misplaced Jesus. He's stuffed down in the wrapping somewhere. We've kind of lost him. And we hope nobody notices. So just take a moment, reflect on your hearts, and ask Jesus to become once again the forefront of your life. Wherever in your life he has sort of become secondary. Take a moment to repent and remember the height of love that we fall from when we replace Jesus. With the motivation of Christ. Lord, I pray that as we as a community work to make you number one and and primary and central to our motivations in our lives, that that would certainly pour into and bleed into the motivations we have as a community. Lord, we know that just like every other community of faith, that if we're not careful, we could indeed lose our first love. And so we look to your correction, we look to your guidance, we look to your guidelines to help us to serve well, to love well, to persevere, but to do all these things motivated by our love for you. Lord, we know we're prone to wander. May your gentle nudges, may your gentle care move us back onto the path 
of following you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.